0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Animal characters were really, really important for these stories. He portrayed them in certain ways and these things have stuck with us. So things like sour grapes, the story of the fox trying to get this hanging, but a bunch of grapes, things like the lion's share as well. There's a whole heap of uh, common phrases and terms that, yeah, they, they have their roots in these ancient stories. The boy who cried wolf, slow and steady wins the race. All
0: of these phrases came from the stories of Aesop, a Greek influencer from about 600 BCE. And here we are, thousands of years later, still referencing them.
1: My name's Joe Wimpenny. I am a zoologist uh, turned writer. So I now write about science and my interests are really in the topic of animal behaviour.
0: And there's a lot of that in Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables. It was at this point I realised I had been pronouncing Aesop's wrong my whole life. It's Aesop's.
1: Aesop's fables, which undoubtedly have persisted to modern times.
0: Jo Wimpenny has looked into the science behind Aesop's stories in her book, Aesop's Animals. Or is it Aesop's? Anyway, if it sounds familiar to you, then yep, you're a loyal listener and I appreciate you. And we invited Jo back for a doggy sort of set of stories. Some of them are known fairly universally, others not so much,
1: like the dog and the shadow. So a dog has found a lovely juicy bone, is heading home and has to cross over uh, some water. I like to eat in private as well. So it's crossing over a bridge, looks down, sees the reflection of a dog carrying a lovely juicy bone. Hello, beautiful. And views it as
0: another dog. Wait, are you friend or foe? And why do you have such a good looking bone? I think I should have that bone. So barks at it. Woof. And basically
1: drops his bone
0: and the other dog and the other bone disappears along with his own as the water forms ripples where oh where has my little doggy gone
1: and so the idea here is that dogs don't understand their own reflections they don't see that the reflected image was actually itself
0: all this one is a doozy because recognition of self in a mirror is often held up as a threshold of consciousness that you have an inner life separate from reactions to stimuli. But is the mirror test fair for dogs? How do they tell each other apart?
1: Probably it's more to do with smell. So a sense of smell in dogs is phenomenal, really, compared to our own. And and that's pretty typical of most mammals, actually. It's olfaction, the sense of smell that tends to be far more sophisticated than it is in in us. So, yes, they have, you know, perfectly good vision and they will recognise things visually. But I think when it comes to recognising and interacting with other individuals, they get a lot of information from smelling them, which, you know, they run up to another dog and they have a good sniff. Yeah, they
0: do. It's the bum-sniffing greetings, which makes complete sense that that's how they're sort of seeing... I mean, there you go, seeing the world. They're smelling the world. So what science has there been around dogs and smell and their perception of the world?
1: Yes. There's this famous study referred to as the yellow snow test. (laughs) can see where we're going with it. (laughs) This was done in the U.S. by a researcher called Mark Beckoff, who was out walking his dog, Jethro. Jethro! And sort of noticed that Jethro, you know, would sniff at other dogs' pee. And often he would sniff at it and then, you know, urinate himself on top of it. And so he wanted to sort of test this. So for a few years, while it was snowy, each winter he would go out with his dog. And every time that Jethro urinated into the snow, He would pick it up, he would (laughs) pick this stuff up and he would then transport it down the path. And, you know, Jethro was off in the bushes having a good sniff, you know, as dogs do. So he would transport it down the path and he did this also for the urine of other dogs. Um, So he was basically sort of disrupting Jethro's knowledge, I suppose, of that local area. And he found that when he came back and sniffed his own urine... Jethro the dog. Not Dr. Bickoff. He spent far less time doing that than when he sniffed the urine of another dog. And he was more likely to then urinate over the markings of another dog than his own. And so the idea was, you know, does he know something about himself just from the smell of his urine?
0: Oh, well, that's a confronting thought but yeah that's it is amazing the lengths that some scientists will go to as well to try and answer a question moving around frozen dog wee paid off for dr beckoff it showed that jethro could id his own urine but does that mean he was aware of
1: himself Now, the way that self-awareness has traditionally been tested is with something called a mirror test. And this was initially done with chimpanzees. And this is where chimpanzees had marks put onto them in places that they wouldn't be able to see normally. So, for example, on the eyebrow or on a little bit of the ear. And then their reactions to themselves were recorded in front of a mirror. They saw the reflected image as themselves. And chimpanzees do this. I mean, this has been the kind of gold standard test of self-awareness since 1970. So 50 years of this test. Now, of course, what Mark Bekoff did wasn't able to to really show this. He wasn't marking the dogs in any way. But more recently, researchers have tried to construct a kind of olfactory mirror test based on this principle. So... The way that they did this was to get dogs into the lab. They asked their owners to bring in a sample of the dog's urine and they then either put a little bit of something into it to to alter the smell or they didn't do that or they presented some other kind of control. And they looked to see how long the dogs spent sniffing at each of these little canisters. And they found that they did spend longer sniffing at the samples of themselves that had been modified. So this is kind of getting a bit closer to the mark test in that something had been changed about this bit of them, which potentially they were through them a little bit or potentially they didn't quite understand, so they spent longer sniffing at it.
0: And that's as close as we've got for the mirror test, but for smells.
1: So it's not a full replica, you know, because the dogs aren't able to actually do anything about it.
0: When they get a chemistry kit out, that's when we know to be really worried. So in the fable, it's about a visual reflection that the dog, and the dog trying to be greedy, (laughs) but it's about a visual reflection. So as... A zoologist and author, what's your conclusion? Did the fables get it right, plausible or myth-busted?
1: I think there is no good evidence that dogs do react to their own reflection. No evidence that they become the object of their own attention in a mirror. Uh, And people have tried to look at this. Um, So Mark Beckoff, who I mentioned before, did some experiments, again, several decades ago, to ask whether dogs recognised their reflections in the way that the mark test had been done with chimpanzees. And they found that um, they didn't respond in any way that indicated that they were aware that the reflection was themselves. And I think if you look at YouTube videos, you always see dogs barking or playing in front of a, a mirror. And that suggests that they're viewing that reflection as another dog. So it seems that Aesop got this one right, But it's what we then interpret about the dog's mind and the dog's way of processing the world that is a little bit harder to do from that. So, with the fable of
0: the dog and the reflection, does the science check out? Sort of. It's thought that dogs can recognise themselves, but just not with a mirror. It still stands as an allegory against greed, though. And you mightn't have heard of the dog in its reflection, but have you heard of the wolf in sheep's clothing?
1: The wolf in sheep's clothing is one of the classic fables, isn't it? It's one of the ones that I think most people know a bit about. And there are lots of different versions of Aesop's fables. They all sort of are broadly similar in that a wolf is doing its thing of trying to feast upon a flock of sheep. And what it decides to do is actually disguise itself as a sheep. Genius. So it finds a fleece and it dresses in the fleece so it looks like a sheep. Very entron, very fall, winter 2022, darling. And by doing so, it's able to infiltrate the flock and deceive the other sheep and also deceive the shepherd. And in some versions, the wolf gets away with it and is able to continue feasting. In this particular version, the wolf did not get away with it. And the the shepherd came into the flock wanting a nice sheep for dinner and managed to choose the wolf. But the overall kind of point of it for me is this depiction of wolves as being both villainous and also deceptive.
0: Yep, both human traits applied liberally to the natural world, a favourite pastime of mine. And what's the human moral of this story then?
1: I think there are several potential morals, but one of the key ones is probably just not to make assumptions, you know, not to be led to, to believe anything because you might well be being deceived.
0: Yep, still relevant today. Think dodgy SMSs that pretend to be your kid, photographers using ghillie suits to sneak up on birds, capitalism itself... It's all an apex predator hiding in a fleecy blanket. But this story is older than Jesus. Literally.
1: Yeah, so we're thinking a bit about the relationship between wolves and dogs here. And our relationship as people stretches back a long way. So we're going back around 40,000 years here, when early humans, also living around the same time as, as I suppose the remnants of the Neanderthal population in Europe would have been coming across wild wolves. And these were ancestral wolves. These are not the same wolves as are present today. But this kind of ancestral wolf species would have been interacting with the early humans. And one of the really influential theories about the domestication of dogs is called the survival of the friendliest. And it proposes that these early wolves were attracted to the camps of the human hunter-gatherers. Um, they would have been attracted by the food that the people were eating. Um, one theory that came out re- reasonably recently even said that they might have been attracted by eating human feces because it's extremely energy rich. <laughs> so that might have been another source of food, but they would have been attracted for you know for scavenging around the camps. And that it would have been the individuals that were bold, um, but also friendly towards humans that would have done best. So you can imagine wolves that were fearful of humans wouldn't have gone there in the first place. Wolves that were aggressive towards humans probably would have been killed. Wolves that were neither of these things might well have been tolerated. The reason that they might have been tolerated is because they may well then have exhibited territorial behaviour which encompassed these settlements. So it might have been, you know, mutually beneficial for the both. Uh, And in this way, it may well be that these early wolves almost domesticated themselves by associating with humans giving rise to the earliest domesticated dogs. And literally, where would we be without them,
0: eh? Anyway, back to the fable. As you say, the wolf does get a pretty bad rap with the cheating tyrant whole thing. And this continued in fairy tales. Little Red Riding Hood, The Three Little Pigs, Wolves of Wall Street, The Werewolves of London. And, I mean, do wolves deserve this reputation?
1: No. (laughs) No. They don't deserve this reputation. I think they've come off badly and amongst... All of the Aesop's fables, I think the wolf is the one that's probably suffered the most from its propagation as this cheating villain, the tyrant. You know, it's across all of the fables, not just the wolf in sheep's clothing, it's consistently portrayed in this way. And then we've got the big bad wolf, Brim's Fairy Tales, Peter and the Wolf actually all of the kind of folk tales that children grow up with portray wolves in this bad way so the point is to say what does science have to tell us about wolf behavior and i approached it from three different points
0: love a listicle let's do it
1: so firstly are they top predators and of course yes they are they're carnivores they have to hunt to survive but it might surprise people to know that they're not perhaps as fantastic a predator or as successful a predator as the stories might make out you know they have to work hard for their males. The success rate in killing is actually quite low. Um, They're dangerous, of course. wouldn't advocate anyone tries to go and hug a wolf. They are dangerous and they can kill people and they do so where, for example, human settlements have expanded and there's a lot more conflict between people and wolves. But they are predators and they should be respected as such. Right, so
0: they're apex predators and could easily take a sheep. The fable gets this right. But... They're not infallible.
1: They tend to be portrayed as loners in the fables. That's also not really true. The key to the wolf is the pack, and that's how they hunt. They have to do it together. They do so cooperatively. Lone wolves tend to be just transitional, either a young wolf dispersing out from the pack to set up its own pack, or potentially in the summer months, just a wolf Mm -hmm. going about its business hunting or patrolling um, when there's less pressure on the pack to actually stay together. You know, those bonds are so strong and they work together and they are loyal to each other and they play together. So, you know, these are all traits that we value quite highly within our our own societies Um, and we'll show all of that.
0: So they're not out there alone putting on costumes to get the inside scoop on sheep flock
1: movements. If they're going to do that, they'll do it in a group. And most crucially, there's no evidence that wolves are deceptive. Or wear costumes. They don't try and cheat each other. So them being portrayed as these cheats and these tyrants, there's no biological basis for that.
0: It's not looking good for the scientific veracity of Aesop's "Wolves in sheep clothing tale.
1: Lots of research has been done on wolves and often it's in comparison with dogs. So a lot of researchers are looking to understand more about how... Uh, The grey wolf uh, in particular is similar or different to domesticated dogs. And some of the research, which is really cool, comes from the Wolf Science Center, which is based in Vienna, just outside Vienna in Austria. And they've done some amazing experiments where they hand-rear dogs and wolves, which involves human caregivers basically having pups to take care of for about the first five months of their life. And that means that dogs and wolves grow up with the same environmental experience. And then they test them on various things. And some of the things that they found point to these differences between, for example, the ways that dogs and wolves cooperate. Wolves are very good at working together. You set them a problem where you know there's food on a, a platform and it's out of reach. And this is a classic experiment for looking at cooperative ability. And what the wolves have to do is both pull on a rope, which is attached to this platform, but they have to both do it at the same time. If only one of them pulls, then the rope is just kind of pulled out and wolves will do this. They will wait for their partner to arrive and then they will both pull together to bring in the platform. Dogs don't do this. Dogs (laughs) fail repeatedly to work together in this way, which makes sense they have evolved to channel those social skills into their relationships with people. Whereas for wolves, it's all to do with working together. Substitute that partner for a human and dogs will do it very well.
0: I love my dog to bits. All right, hear me out then. What if it wasn't a wolf in the sheep's clothing, but a bougie dog dressed in a Sherpa jacket by an overly concerned owner who didn't quite keep control
1: of Poochie on a day
0: out to the country?
1: Could be. Wolves will actually work together with people as well. If they've been hand raised in this way, um, they view them as cooperative partners, which is pretty cool. Ooh, the plot
0: thickens. And I would suggest then that the shepherd in the tale takes a good look at the quality of character in his local buy, swap and sell group because he could have a nasty neighbour.
1: And the other big difference between them is in their persistence. So in the wild, wolves face all kinds of challenges uh, and the way that they tend to, to solve these is just sheer persistence. They will try everything, you know, brute force and pretty much every other trick in the book to try and get what, they're, what they want. So it's tempting to look at all the research that's coming out and say wolves are overall just kind of better than dogs at solving problems. It certainly seems to be. But in fact, if you look at it in a different way, dogs are far more successful than wolves, and than wolves have ever been. You know, the number of dogs on this planet, the the success of them is is staggering. Sweetie, oh, yeah, come to mum. Wait, wait. So the real wolf in sheep's
0: clothing is actually a dog pulling wool over our eyes. I love my doggy. I mean, when you think about it, dogs have probably cost us more in resources just in the last decade than wolves ever did over the millennia. Right, we need a verdict. Did Aesop get this one right or wrong?
1: Yes, Aesop did get this one wrong. No, the wolf is not the one for a fable all about. Deception.
0: Maybe wolves just need a bit of a PR overhaul.
1: I think so. There's so much to admire about wolves. Their behaviour is so much more interesting than this one-dimensional view of them as being just the villains, the bad guys. It's very easy when writing a story or making a film that involves some animal bad guy Uh, to go for the wolf. Like it's one of the classic bad guys, isn't it? And simply the fact that they have managed to survive in a world that's become increasingly hostile to them. But centuries of persecution, I think they they really do deserve a PR overhaul.
0: It's possibly a bit more dangerous than just a misunderstanding too. Because what if these sorts of incorrect cultural attitudes seep into conservation decision-making?
1: I suppose my take on this is that fictional animal representations, it's not a problem, but it's when those representations cross over into our beliefs about how animals truly are Mm. that I think it becomes a little bit problematic. Maybe we do need new fables or new stories just to balance these out and to, Mm. to actually portray the animals in the right way. Challenge accepted.
0: Maybe it is time to do some environmental myth-making. The Politician and the Bushfire There once was a fire who burned so ferociously through the bushland that she singed every tree. She burned through their roots. She obliterated the mammals. The birds flew before her in a panic and they died in fright and exhaustion. A noble politician, robe of Teflon, heart of stone, said, Oh, that fire is bad. She's so, so very bad. She's the baddest of bad. Everything is her fault. And the fire called her friend the rain, who, empathising with the smith, started to cry. Her tears ran down the hillsides and into the streams and culverts and into rivers and floodplains and picked up dirt and houses and spewed them into the sea. And the noble politician, floaties intact, sweating slightly, addressed the crowd from a tinny and said, ah, this rain is bad, this rain, it's bad, bad, bad. It's the baddest of bad. It's all the rain's fault. The lightning bolt of science heard this press conference and thought, well, that's bullshit. (coughs) because we know that the fire is burning, the rain is crying like that because of anthropogenic climate change. So the lightning bolt of science sent down an almighty line of electricity and yeeted that politician into the depths of the ocean where he was gently massaged by the great white shark of comeuppance and came to settle on the seafloor next to the gleeful crabs who feed on shame. And the moral of the story is, don't point to nature as the baddie, when the baddie could just be the one with the finger doing the pointing. Joe Wimpenny's book is called Aesop's Animals, The Science Behind the Fables. What the Duck is produced by me, Anne Jones, along with Patricia Ladgrove. This program is mostly produced on Wadawurrung and Ghana country. And no matter where you are in the world, you can find us on a podcast app where you should subscribe. Go on. It'll be fun. And if there's a mystery that you have, or a story that's too weird and needs scientific checking out, then email us, whattheduck at abc.net.au. What the Duck listeners, I know you like nature, so can I recommend that you check out the heartbreaking story of painter Susan Lester on the Earshot podcast? Susan was commissioned to produce 200 paintings of Tasmanian birds by Edmund Rouse. A Tassie media magnate and she worked tirelessly for four years to create scientifically accurate paintings but little did she know her life and art would get caught up in one of Australia's most notorious political scandals. Sue's sister Libby tells the story. In 1989 I was working for a Melbourne newspaper and was sent to Tasmania to cover the extraordinary events that were unfolding. I watched as Edmund Rouse was escorted into the Launceston police station to be charged with attempted bribery. I knew what I was witnessing would affect Sue. But I didn't realise how much. Her paintings were lost for over a decade and when they were found, one was missing. The swift parrot. Now one of the most endangered species we have in Australia. Hear the full story on Earshot. Find it on the ABC Listen app.